Welcome to the All Y'all Podcast. I'm Sarah Abair. And I'm Chris J. All Y'all is a live storytelling event series and podcast that we produce independently right here in Shreveport, Louisiana. This is our 48th episode of the podcast. It's so hard to believe. I'm so proud of Chris and I for hanging in there for 48 episodes. And um, this episode is a really special one. It features our friend and Academy Award winning filmmaker and amazing illustrator and super duper dude, William Joyce. Bill told his story live on stage during our March 2016 event with the theme Mama and Daddy. Bill's story was one of the highlights of a night that had a lot of laughter along with some tears. Just so you know, this episode's a little longer than most, but anyone who's met him knows that you really can't contain Bill Joyce. You cannot give this man a time limit. (laughs) And since it's been almost two years since Bill told his story on the All Y'all stage, Chris and I recently caught up with Bill to discuss storytelling, rule breaking, and growing up in Shreveport. So stick around after Bill's story to hear that interview. Before we hear Bill's story, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Williams Creative Group. Williams Creative Group is a marketing and public relations firm that can help you or your company see the big picture in different ways. They create PR, advertising, marketing, and digital results for clients each and every day and help businesses of all sizes tell their stories. Learn more at williamscreativegroup.com. And briefly, if you are a business that you know might be interested in sponsoring All Y'all, we are open to taking on new sponsors. And if you are interested, you can reach out to us at hello at allyallblog.com. And so without further ado, here's storyteller William Joyce recorded live on stage at the Bossier Arts Council's East Bank Theater on March 12th, 2016. We're calling his story A Mother's Love. I've come to several of these, and um, I'd just like to start out and say, hi, y'all. <laughs> All of y'all. I think Sarah and, and, and Chris do one of the most amazing things in this area, that they have brought together storytellers to sit down in uh, the classic oral tradition. I mean, we don't have a campfire out here, but it feels like it a little bit. and and brought some people together to hear stories of folks that are from around here or have experienced things here and and that they fill the place up and that you guys come I think is a remarkable thing that we all need stories and that people still will go out of their houses and leave their computers and their Facebook and everything else behind and come out and listen to some folks in person and so I just want like I want to say give it up for Chris and for Sarah. They are awesome old school visionaries. My speech is on my hand, <laughs> and clapping has somewhat warped it. So I'm going to talk about my, uh, a lot of things tonight, but it's, you know, they said, uh, Sarah said, would you like, no, actually, Sarah didn't say, would you like. I said, Sarah, damn it. Why haven't you asked me to do any of these things? And she said, well, would you like to do one? And I said, yes, I would. I would like to talk about my mama. And because in the South, at least in my generation, we didn't have moms and we didn't have mothers. We had mama. And so I've had a very, a very difficult six years. I lost my, my daughter and I lost my wife recently. And people kept asking me, how did you get through this? How did you, how did you manage to 
get through this. I didn't really think about it. I would just say, I, I have no choice, you know? I mean, they're, and they're like, well, what I'm like, I don't know, I get up in the morning, I put one foot in front of the other. It, it just, what else can you do? But when I started to think about the story that I wanted to tell about my mom, my mama, then it began to kind of come into focus for me a little bit, how I was able to, to get through that. So I'm going to tell you the story of my mama. She was born in 1921 in Blue Springs, Mississippi. And she was the oldest of four sisters. Her mom and dad were sharecroppers, and they were the poorest people that you could be, basically, if, you know, other than being homeless. You know, sharecropping was, it was a cling-to-life existence. And so there they are in this tiny farm, eking out an existence, and, and evidently having a great time. I mean, in, in, my mom got, when I grew, was you know, old enough to listen, I would listen to her talk with her sisters, who we would see maybe twice a year, you know, or once, and they would talk about those days on the farm with such affection and giggle like little girls again, even though they were grown-ups and they were mamas. It just, it was kind of remarkable to listen to that because one thing my mom hated and my grandmother hated was watching the Waltons. <laughs> Do you remember that show in the 70s? It was about being a poor farmer in the Depression. And, and they would watch that show and they would just like get so mad. They would go, Those, look, look how much food they have on their table. We didn't have that much food in a month than they have every day. This show is so stupid. Stupid. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, that's kind of awesome. I mean, really? Y'all didn't have that much food? And they're like, are you kidding? Like, you know, like, you didn't have hogs and stuff? I'm like, no, we didn't have hogs. We were sharecroppers. We made a crop and we shared almost all of it with the guy who owned the land. I mean, they were eking an existence out. You know, they are, they are struggling as hard as they can. And my grandfather, her, my mama's, my mama's dad, uh, dies in the field, has a heart attack, you know, in the middle of this cotton field. And I remember my mom telling me she was coming home from school. She was the oldest. She got to go to school, and she saw her sisters running down the uh, the red clay road, just pell mell, barefoot, and saying, "Daddy's, daddy, something's wrong with daddy." My mom was pretty young, and but she knew, like, she just knew. She could tell from the looks on their faces, she could tell from the way they were, that this was not, like, okay. And sure enough, he, he died. You know, he died, and they carried his body into, into town in a, in, a, in, a, in a wagon, pulled by a mule. So if there's anything poorer than a family of sharecroppers, on a, on a farm, then the only poorer thing is a family of sharecroppers who have no who have no father, who have no man at that point to take care of things. So they were off the farm. They were no longer sharecropping. And somehow they eked out an existence. And somehow my grandmother managed to get herself through nursing school. Can you imagine? I mean, you are you are a subsistence farmer, and then you go one notch down, and you somehow find a way to raise four daughters, 
and go to nursing school and become a nurse. And somehow my grandmother managed this thing. And so I do have to pause for a moment and digress for about my grandmother, another mom, and that I knew her as this, this steely uh, older woman with this awesome purple hair, this sort of, this sort of mushroom cloud helmet, this assemblage of, of I, I mean, I don't even know, it looked like cotton candy or something. And at some point in this, in this sojourn, she was taught to drive. And I don't know who taught her, but this is the way she drove. She would start the car by putting her foot on the accelerator all the way, and then she would insert the key and turn it on. And it, it would be like, you know, the Indianapolis 500. When they, you know, and these are cars of yore. These are 70s cars that I'm talking about. So they had like a billion horsepower and 80 million gallons of gas, and the thing would just, you know, this enormous, this, this tsunami of gas would get used in this, this, this seismic ignition event. And, and, and it used to embarrass me as a kid. It's like, oh my God, you know, me, why am I in my car with my grandmother? This is so humiliating and she doesn't know how to do anything. And, but one day, and she was very Baptist, extremely Baptist, and I'll get back to that in a second. And we were at the Brookshires, the old, the Brookshires that used to be, you know, on, um, we're next to Maryland's, my brother-in-law's restaurant. And we're sitting there, and this is when St. Vincent's was still around, the, the convent and the school. And these two nuns, in their habits, were, were, were walking out of the Brookshires, and they had all their, like, groceries. And they were coming up in front of our car at just the right time when my grandmother, without really realizing it, <laughs> started her car and floored it and turned it on and did the, you know, <laughs> and, and the nuns leapt into the air and their habits flew and their groceries and their holy water and everything just went <laughs> flying and, 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 my, and that's the only time I ever saw my grandmother laugh. <laughs> and I was laughing too. I was like, that was kind of awesome. And, and so from then on, I really like, I dug my grandmother. I was like, this is, she's, this is all right. She also loved Billy Graham, and um, she loved any high-haired evangelist, and the higher the hair, the better, and she would, when she would stay with us, it'd be like, you know, and this is back when there's only three channels, all right, and I'm a little kid, and it's like, it's bad enough you have to watch a fishing show or something, but, but on Saturdays, if she was staying with us, or maybe it was Sundays, I can't remember, but it was, it was Billy Graham when Billy was out out and and it was Lawrence Welk and boy she loved Lawrence Welk and I, you just sat there as a kid just going what is if I'm gonna grow up if this is what adulthood is count me out man I don't want I don't want high hair I don't want to be singing goofy songs I don't want like really bad plaid and huge flares and I don't want bubbles and I don't want Lawrence Welk I mean but she adored that stuff and now, I'm like, <laughs> when, when my daughter Mary Catherine was a little kid, you know, they still play Lawrence Welk on PBS on Saturdays, like at six. I mean, it's the strangest, like, time warp. I don't understand, like, why does that happen? Like, who, who in here wants to see Lawrence Welk? <laughs> I mean, this is some, like, dynastic 
I don't know, like, like, are we reaching back for some nostalgia that no one has? I'm just not sure. But my daughter, as a little kid, as a teeny kid, when Lawrence, well, I mean, she would ask for it. She called it the Bubble Man, the Bubble Man show. And she would sit there and listen to those polkas and in her little, like, preschool thing, dance around, like, forever. So I'm like, I don't know, maybe it's genetic. Lawrence Welk is a genetic thing. My grandmother also loved Liberace. She had no clue. <laughs> Not at all. He has the prettiest hair, is what she would always say. So somehow my grandmother raised these four daughters and became a nurse and kept them from starving. And my mother grew up, and she became a great beauty. And she, too, went into, uh, into nursing school because there wasn't much else. You know, you become a school teacher or whatever it was. And my mom became a nurse, and she, they, she was so pretty that they used her. She became actually an, an army nurse, a WAC, which stands for Women's Army Corps. Yes. But there she was, and she was a, 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 an army nurse in Alabama. And she met this man named William Jernigan, who was there wounded. He had, it was his third wound. He was, a, he was a, an army ranger, which is like the Green Beret of then, and this being World War II. And he had lost these three fingers on this hand, and they fell in love. He was a, kind of a wild man. He and my mother had had two children, uh, my half-sister Cecile and my half-sister Melissa. I think the, the designation of half is we have to come up with a better one because <laughs> it's, just, it's just not true. I mean, they're my sisters, and why make this designation? I always found it's if, like when I'm introduced, people say, I'll introduce them as this is my half-sister. You know, it's like, like she's all there. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's 360 degrees of her. I mean, and so they, here my mom was with these, these two beautiful daughters, and, and they're faced with, you know, an early death yet again of her husband. And she had to pull herself up, herself up and, and, and try to keep going. And I know that she really loved this guy. And I think maybe he was the love of her life. So she's, years go by, and they're living in Bruton, Alabama. And Bruton is like this little, little Alabama brigadoon. Like, you happen into this place, and it's just this perfect pastoral little southern town. And so by now, this guy, there's this guy. My mom's sitting out on the porch of her friends, the Ottmans. So this, she's sitting there, and this man drives. She's sitting there. She's sitting on the porch. It's, a, it's like a, a summer day on the weekend. She's not having to nurse. She's, like, chilling. And she's having a cold beer because they had an ice bucket because, you, know, you, like, you know, they had an ice bucket. They had, like, four beers in it. And my mom is sitting there on this porch drinking a beer. And this car comes down the street, this magnificent car, this Buick Roadmaster convertible. And if you know anything about cars, like the Buick Roadmaster of, of, the, of the early 50s is probably the most romantic, magnificent car of the golden age of the American automobile. And, and, and a convertible was basically just, it was, like, it was like driving, I'm sorry, a penis down the street. Just a, this, <laughs> this awesome, giant penis down the street. And so... <laughs> In that penis was my father. <laughs> 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 
George Edward Joyce, sharecropper's son, dirt poor. The only reason he had now um, um, gotten out of uh, Mooringsport, Louisiana, was because he had enlisted in World War II the day after Pearl Harbor, and had spent four years, five years in the Pacific, and was able to go to Centenary College on the GI Bill, and he graduated in three years because he had spent five years in the Pacific, and he wanted to start making a living because he had never really done anything except be a sharecropper's son. And then he's driving down the street in Bruton, Alabama, and he sees this magnificent woman with this raven black hair, sitting on the porch with her feet up on the, on, the, on the railing, drinking a cold beer. And he had in his back seat, for reasons I have never been able to ascertain, a mariachi band. <laughs> he, all, he just always said, I like tamales. And how he had, where, I don't know, any of this stuff, but there's mariachis. And he's driving down the street and he sees my mom and he's stops and he quiets the mariachis and she has noticed you know because he has driven up in this 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 elegant penis and he has mariachis in the back and he goes well hey there darling what you got and she goes well, i got me a cold beer and he goes i love me a cold beer and she goes well then get your ass up here <laughs> and they were married six months later so my, my two sisters, I will call them sisters, not half-sisters, moved to Shreveport, Louisiana in 1956 with my mom and my dad. And we still were growing up in touch with this family, this amazing family of Jernigans that she had married into. These wild people, these fun people, John L. and uh, Uncle Paul. John L. was missing a thumb. His brother had lost these fingers. My grandfather was missing a thumb and was, had a glass eye. And I'm like, do we have some strange family digit curse that I should be concerned about? And one day when I was uh, tossing my World War, no, 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 excuse me, my Civil War bayonet that my grandfather gave me under the ground and it pierced my foot and went entirely through, I remember them going, well, you might lose a toe and be part of the family now. <laughs> But we had this amazing, wonderful, I had this great childhood. These wild people, these people who had survived the Depression and World War II, who had made it through from the, the, just the depths of poverty, had fought in a war, and their government had helped them get educated, at least in my father's case, and they had a chance, and they grabbed at life with both hands, with everything they had. And we weren't, it wasn't a sedate childhood. It was, it was laughter and, you know, going out and tearing things up and driving around in that Roadmaster with the top down and the music going as loud as it could. And it was, it just felt so romantic and vibrant and alive. And I think it's a great, a great deal of whatever it is I've become or whatever it is I do, it comes from that. But then my mom got sick and when I was 12, she was diagnosed with cancer. And she died when I was 14. And I remember this thing, and it harkens back to how did you get through this bill, what you've gone through these, these six years. And it was towards the end of my, my mom's illness, and she had 
withered down to, to almost nothing, and though she was still very like vibrant and awake and alive, and but she weighed maybe 50 pounds, and I was asleep in the in the in the living room for some reason, and I was looking, I could see right into my parents' bedroom, and framed in the doorway like as if in a, in a, in a camera or a, a film I saw I couldn't hear what they were saying but they were talking and she was in bed and he was leaning over and talking to her very sweetly very gently and they were they were smiling you know and, and she was she was close to death and yet they, they were standing there talking to each other as if nothing had, was wrong and I remember he leaned over and he picked her up he, he, she had to go to the bathroom I guess and he he scooped her up in his arms as delicately as, as, you, as you would like the most delicate flower, the most delicate piece of porcelain. And he held her and she, they, she wrapped her arms around him as best she could. And, and they walked out you know, of my sight line. And I, and I thought to myself, and I looked at them and I was like, they didn't see that she was sick. They, were, they saw... He, my father was seeing that, that person he'd seen that first day on that porch, you know, drinking that beer. Like, she was still as beautiful to him as, as, as she was at that moment in, in 1950. And he came back, you know, and he placed her so delicately in bed, and, and they still were smiling, and they were laughing. And I'm, I'm 14, and I'm going, I've just seen something amazing. I've just seen, and you know, you're 14, you're not, you just, you're so dumb when you're 14, but I knew I was seeing something important. I was seeing what love was, and, and it stuck with me. And so years later, you know, I meet uh, Elizabeth, my wife-to-be, and we fall in love. But you know, you know <laughs> you're, you're in your 20s and you're just sort of like a goof, right? And she was at LSU, and I was—I had just graduated from SMU, and I went down to see her, and <laughs> we were so bad. She lived in the Kappa House, right? And if we wanted to, you know, mess around, you know, we couldn't go to the Kappa House. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, mm -mm. <laughs> so you know, I'd book a hotel, this kind of seedy, like Alamo Plaza thing, and <laughs> and. Uh, and we would be out drinking all night at the cotton club. And then, you know, the next morning, I'm like waking up. I'm like, oh, God, what hellhole are we in? And I look over to Elizabeth, and she's trying to get dressed. And <laughs> she's really having trouble because she's so hungover. And, and I'm like, I just got this flash to like when my dad was picking up my mom. And I thought, I got to take care of this girl. I mean, I just... I got to take care of this girl, and so it wasn't long after that, that I asked her to marry her and and to marry me, and um, and seven years later we did get married. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had children, and we had a son named Jack and a daughter named Mary Catherine, named after my mom. Her illness and the loss of her was very difficult, but Elizabeth became a mom, a mama in the strongest way and for whatever I had gone through as a kid there's nothing harder I think than for a mom a mama to lose a child and 
Elizabeth did that with extraordinary courage and grit and class and thoughtfulness and kindness. And then two weeks after our daughter died, she was diagnosed with ALS. And that was hard. Everything about everything was hard, but that was losing a child is one thing. I mean, there are things, there are losses that, you know, we all have and we don't get over. You have to get through it. And that's what people kept asking me. How do you get through this? And I think back, and it's always, always from that moment that I saw my mom and dad at at my mom's weakest point, though she'd been a valiant, strong woman, that the love between them had, had gotten them through the worst thing. And so if you, if you ask me how did I get through that or how any of us get through anything, I think, I think now I can say, and it's because, because I demanded to, to tell this story that I didn't know the end of, really until today, until I, I was thinking about it, that, that how we get through things, we get through things through love. It's as simple as that. And it doesn't need to be analyzed and it doesn't need to be explained much more than that. I think that you'll know what I'm talking about, that the love for another person can make you so much stronger than you think you could be and make you be able to put yourself, do things that you couldn't imagine. And so tonight as we celebrate moms and mamas, I'll just leave you with that one thought that there is nothing more powerful in this world than a mother's love. And so thank you for listening to the story. And remember, it's love. That was author, illustrator, and filmmaker William Joyce recorded live in 2016. If you weren't in the audience that night, you'd have no way of knowing this. (laughs) But Bill broke the one cardinal rule of all y'all live when he took the stage to share his story. That's right. Bill wrote notes on his hand. He brought notes on stage. Um, We ask our storytellers to share from the heart and to not bring any notes on stage. But Bill, of course, had to do it his own way like he always does. And so uh, we met up with him to talk about that. And here's our recent conversation recorded at a roadside burger joint, Gullows. um, And we talked to him about why it's always been important to Bill to play by his own rules. (laughs) So I I wanted to start talking to you just to say that like Chris and I are really flattered that you asked to tell a story at all at all it really made us feel like we were doing something really important so thank you for doing that I do think what you're doing is cool and uh, but I also like to talk so (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't hurt at all (laughs) so um you know when we were talking about all y'all and you telling a story we kind of walked you through the process of what we do we were like hey the one thing that you can't do is you can't bring any notes on stage (laughs) right and I didn't (laughs) Well, just technically you didn't, but you did. You you made they some were personal, non-permanent, um, um, you know, markings or uh, you know, like tattoos in a way. I was thinking of it that way. Okay. They're like henna. Yeah, and just for context for people listening, Bill wrote some little little notes on his hand. All over it, covered it completely, <laughs> front and back, yep. and up my forearm as well. I, I did not catch that part. <laughs> I, I I memorized those bits, so it was okay. So, like, now that we've known each other for a while, uh-huh. I, something I have noticed about you is that you really like to break rules. Like, <laughs> there are things that I don't think you would do unless they were a rule that you wanted to break. Has that always been the case? Evidently, yes. Yeah. You know, like, 
and that goes. Yeah, I, I think I think it began to flourish in high school, and uh, when I I would just do the most interesting ways of of getting into trouble. You know, it wasn't like just getting in a fight or skipping school. It was some baroque. Like, I wonder if a flaming Christmas tree going down the stairwell, you know, would be cool. <laughs> but then if you tied little messages on it and see if any of them survived, you know, and they're like political things about, you know, Nixon and stuff like that. <laughs> that, would, that would so totally confuse, you know, the authorities that would find what was left of the burned Christmas tree at the bottom of the the stairwell at C.E. Bird High. Um, you know, that just seemed kind of fun. So, um, And we got away with it. I, I was just about to say, <laughs> you had a lot of help in high school getting away with things, right? Because Miss Marita Bowden. Well, yes. I mean, we had a, I had a journalism teacher, Marita Bowden, who, who is still with us at 91. And, um, and she was the patron saint of every ne'er-do-well in school. But she, it was only the ne'er-do-wells who showed you know, sort of intellectual and creative promise. It wasn't like we're out, well, burning Christmas trees down the stairwell sounds bad, but you know, it, it, there, there's a lot of times there's a literary bent to my mischief and to the mischief of some of my compatriots. And that's what, since she was a journalism teacher, she, uh, she, she saw the, the, if we were, if we were, if we were rough, you know, stones in the rough, you know, she, she saw the glimmer of what might happen, you know, someday. Well, one of my favorite things about high school and about that time was our principal, Dr. B.L. Shaw, who became representative and senator, you know, Buddy Shaw, okay. who yeah. just passed away. Um, <laughs> he had so many opportunities to not just kick me out of school, but, you know, throw me to prison, whatever draconian you know juvenile detention possibilities there were I, I was I was so ripe to be shipped off to some you know prison island for really bad boys <laughs> the island of misfit teenagers and uh but he never did in fact he was just <laughs> towards the end of my career there at Bird, you know he just said, "You just, I'm just so excited for your future, Bill, because I think someday you're going to funnel all this energy into something that might not be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't last a second in today's, no, you know, atmosphere. No. It would be, I'd be so up the river, down the creek, whatever." Well, thank you for breaking all the rules of all y'all and sharing these beautiful stories with us. Um, hey, man, I love what you guys do. I, it, it is so... <sighs> the oral tradition seems to be having, if I may be so <laughs> academic, you know, having a sort of rebirth in a way. I mean, this is like old-time radio, yeah. you know, and people just telling stories, but it's so democratic people from all over the community and the region getting to sit down and tell some slice of their life that seems to resonate for everybody. And I'm continually amazed at the things, the stories that I hear from, uh, from all y'all. It's wonderful work.
Thanks for listening to another episode of the All Y'all Podcast. Sarah and I are really excited to announce that our next episode will be a podcast-exclusive story featuring Shreveport native and professional wrestler Big Daddy Yum Yum. It's a hilarious, inspiring interview that involves Ric Flair, the Yakuza, and a whole lot more. You're just going to have to hear it to believe it. We'll also be announcing details of our next live event very soon. Be sure to like the All Y'all Facebook page for updates, or you can follow us on Twitter at All Y'all Podcast to stay in the know when we've got news and announcements. Finally, we just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has reviewed our podcast on iTunes over the last few months. We have received like 10 new reviews in the last month or two. If you left one of those, thank you. If you've got a few moments and you'd like to help others discover All Y'all, please leave a review on our podcast at, on the iTunes page. It helps more than you know. Um, right now, they are doing a lot more to curate and recommend podcasts. If you open the podcast app, you probably know this. If you use an iPhone, you're starting to see, maybe you'll like this podcast. If you enjoyed such and such, you'll enjoy such and such. Well, you can help us get recommended in those recommendations by leaving a review of the podcast. And it just feels really good to, to see you guys liking what we do. Yeah. So thanks. Lift, lifts our spirits. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Thanks, y'all.